0: Please pray with me. Father, we are before you. And with such a text read and before us, in the direct history of your redemptive purposes, we are exposed. Father, we are needy. We are your image bearers. And you know our hearts. And we confess that we have only just begun to know ourselves. And our tendency is either to find something on which we can stake our value or to plunge into a desperate state. But we praise you that as Aaron prayed at the very beginning of this service, that you have given us the good news of the gospel, that God saves sinners. Father, I ask that you would allow us to consider ourselves sinners in these next few moments and that in your kindness as you reveal yourself in the midst of a story like this that you, Father, would lead us to worship. Father, you know the women and the men who are gathered here today. Father, you know the complexity of our gathering. You know the things that we have had to choose not to talk about just to be here today. You know the things that we have avoided on purpose. You know who we are. And we pray that you would draw us into your presence. Even as that psalm said, would we know of your nearness? And Father, for the next few minutes, would you cause us not to run away, but to gaze upon you, to look you in the eyes, and to hear you say that you know us. Father, there is no way that any speaker can communicate that to all of the hearts in a room. But you can, Holy Spirit. And so allow us to see Jesus. Allow us to worship. Allow us to be overwhelmed by your faithfulness, Father. And for those women and men who are here who have yet to put their faith and trust in you, would this be the day Father, sustain us as we look at your word, we give you thanks and praise, and in Jesus, your name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to look at Isaac's family, and I need to warn you, it's not easy. If your family doesn't struggle, this sermon is not going to be encouraging to you today. But if your family struggles, this sermon is for you and for me. And honestly, we know the truth, don't we? We do struggle. We struggle to believe. We struggle to act. We struggle to love. This sermon is for you and your family. This sermon is also for us and for our family, this body. This story is sobering because it tells of the deep dysfunction of a family. You guys know that one of my favorite artists is a North Carolinian by the name of David Wilcox, and he sings a song called Holy War. Uh, excuse me, Covert War. And hit, this one line says this, Holy days that bring us all together. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, you know them. Holy days that bring us all together after so much is left unsaid. You taught us well not to kick under the table, so we kick under our breath instead. When I read this story in the last few weeks, that line of what families teach each other shuddered in my heart. Isaac and Rachel are here in this story with Jacob stealing his birthright, stealing the birthright from Esau, right? But what we see is Isaac and Rachel's Rachel's struggle. They're wealthy, they have everything that they want, they have servants, they have all that they need except control. And Jacob's struggle, as you will see in the next few weeks, in the next month or so, is the same. Jacob has inherited it. In youth group, we play this game called happy family. You got to try to guess each other and you have aliases. And when you guess each other, you get each other and you pull them into your happy family. This is a scene of a very unhappy family. In the South, you guys know that I have more phrases. I almost gave you one right there, but I won't. I have more phrases. But one of the phrases that I grew up with was, fruit don't fall far from the tree. And what we see in this story of Isaac and Rachel is just that. I want us to keep emphasizing, did I say Rachel? Rebecca. Rebecca. Thank you. I love the nods. Isaac and Rebecca, I have read the story. Have mercy. I want to keep emphasizing that you understand that because God had given the oracle that the older would serve the younger, it did not have to happen this way. These parents could have submitted to God's will and they could have taught their children God's will. They could have revealed to their children... What God revealed to Rebecca, but they didn't. They could have taught their boys about God, but they didn't. They could have taught their children how to honor Him, but they didn't. I'm gonna thwarted by our human sinfulness. I want you to see that that is true in our families, and I want you to see that that is also true in God's family, and I want to show you why. You can imagine that that's where we'll get led to Jesus, right? The very first one, God's gracious purposes of redemption are not thwarted by human sinfulness in our family trees. This family tree that we see with Isaac and Rebekah, they have these two boys, Jacob and Esau, and you're familiar with the story. But I want you to think about the story with me for a minute. I want you to think about what we know of Isaac and Rebekah. I want you to consider for a minute what we read in chapter 25, that Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob because of the food that he was fed by his son. I want you to remember that Rebecca loved Jacob more, as chapter 20 tells us, 25 tells us. If you look closely, you will see that this act of deception does not happen with teenage boys. But this act of deception actually happens when these men are 40 years old. We see that Isaac starts in chapter 27 as attempting to secretly bless his son Esau. Now look, for a father to bless his son, his firstborn, is the right of the firstborn, primogenitor. It is the right to give that blessing, and that blessing is a pronouncement of the future in which all of the family's wealth is invested for that blessing to come to pass and in God's chosen promised family as this family is it is prophetic this blessing is not a mere I hope you do well but it is a blessing may you do well by the power of God And here we see Isaac secretly making a decision with Esau, go and get me food, the kind of food that I like, that feeds my soul, and come back and I will bless you. This blessing was not to be done in secret. This was to be a public event. But Isaac attempted to bless Esau in private. Isaac was driven by his own sensuality versus obedience to the oracle that he knew. He believed in the power of words Isaac did. Otherwise, he wouldn't have attempted to bless Esau with those very words. We see Rebekah in the first 18 verses as one who is unwilling to confront her husband. She also chooses her son, Jacob, to be her favorite. She chooses to lie and encourage Jacob to lie. She manipulates Jacob by commanding him to lie. And she who heard the oracle of God, that the older would serve the younger, Rebecca lacked trust in God. Well, don't worry, you've got the boys to think about. Jacob in this story. What do we know about Jacob from the moment that his brother came in famished? So hungry that he felt like he was going to fall and be exhausted. Instead of loving his brother, he deceived, or didn't deceive his brother, he, he, he took from his brother his birthright for a bowl of soup. We've already read that story and looked at it. Jacob wants the blessing more than anything else. Jacob has inherited his lack of trust. And Jacob is a liar. The irony of the three lies and the kiss in this story is so rich it drips. And then there's Esau, the man's man, the hunter, the chef. What do we know about him? He is dismissive of God, defensive, angry, vindictive. In the verses that will follow, the verses that we just read, we see Esau say, as soon as my father is dead, I'm going to kill my brother. This is the chosen family of God. What do we do with that? They've been given this oracle in chapter 25. Not only that, but when Isaac and Rebekah first met, Rebekah wasn't able to bear children, and Isaac prayed on her behalf, and God granted her to become pregnant. And then when Rebecca became pregnant with twins and she wondered what was going on, she went back to God and she found out that in her womb were two nations, the older of which would serve the younger. This is what they had been given, these incredible promises. But we see this unfaithfulness of this family and their broken future. But still, God's purposes advance. And so you might ask the question, well, who cares? The oracle came true. Isn't that the point of this story anyway? If you notice what happens with this family and the rest of this text, we find that Isaac, as one commentator said, becomes a mist. You hardly even hear of him again until he dies. Rebecca is not mentioned again after this story, not even her death. Jacob goes through a life where he is constantly deceived. He too chooses favorites among his children, he too inherits broken relationships with his wives. There's one episode that we're going to read where one wife even buys her husband for a night from another wife. And ultimately, Jacob, too, is deceived by his sons with a robe dipped in blood. And Esau, Esau is not even part of the story moving forward. We will see him one more time. But otherwise, he is alone. So let me ask you again Do you have an oracle, an unfaithful family, a broken future? But God's purpose advances. Who cares? God cares. Let me ask you about your family. Do you like the character tests? I hate them. (laughs) Myers-Briggs, all of that stuff. My wife loves to talk about the Myers-Briggs that associates you with a poo character. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're either Eeyore or you're Tigger or you're Christopher Robin or you're Piglet. I always would like to be Tigger, but I know deep down I'm Eeyore, and I don't want to hear about it. I don't like the Myers-Briggs with Pooh characters. My wife loves to tell me in the Enneagram what number I am. I don't even know how many numbers there are in the Enneagram. I don't know if it goes from 1 to 10 or all the way to 15 or maybe to 20. I do not know, but my wife loves to tell me what number I am, and I block it out. I want you to think about why this story is in the Bible when we think about this family that bears the promises of God. I want to play a different character identification with you. I want to ask you, with whom do you most associate yourself? Isaac? Rebecca, Jacob, Esau. Remember, Isaac is the one who tries to take control by secretly blessing. He's the one driven by sensuality. Rebecca is the one that's unwilling to confront, who chooses lies and manipulation, uses people as pawns, lacks trust in God. Jacob just wants blessing, not trusting, but willing to lie for it. Esau, dismissive of God, defensive, angry, vindictive. What if we were to think and actually talk among each other, as opposed to Enneagram numbers, which person in this promised family Am I most like I want to tell you there is more hope in doing that than trying to figure out what poo character you're like and that's because of the second thing that I want you to look at God's gracious purposes are not thwarted by human sin even in his own family tree that's right church we are a family. In fact, I'm going to be bold enough, and the reason I think I can do this is, and this is, this is another thing that Mita and I, she does not like it when I say this, but I keep saying it. You're not going to be married in heaven. And Mita's like, what? Like, how in the world is that going to be? But there is no marriage in heaven, meaning that even our earthly families are pointing us to something greater, which is a heavenly family. A family where the church calls each other's brothers and sisters. Where just like our earthly family, we don't pick each other for siblings, do we? I almost want to ask the siblings, how many of you would pick your siblings for siblings if you had a chance? But I'm not going to ask you that. What do we do when our sinful selves have worked us into a corner, church family? What does this text teach us? Do we just keep pressing on? Or do we stop? You know that in this text, it's not just Jacob who lies to Isaac. Isaac has sought to circumvent all of God's control. Rebecca. Has Sought to manipulate the entire thing and Encourages Jacob to lie Jacob lies He steals the blessing Esau comes in and with anguish He says don't you have anything for me And he receives an anti blessing as it were What do we learn from this text? One commentator said this, and it made me stop and think. It made me stop to think about a text like this, and he said that interruptions of the kingdom of God ultimately depend on God's sovereign grace, not on human faithfulness. Think about that just a minute. The eruptions of the kingdom of God ultimately depend on God's sovereign grace, not on human faithfulness. Listen, I want to say that if you hear that in your first response is resolution, that that's not going to happen in my family versus worship, then there's a problem. One of those responses is going to lead to blame. If the only thing that you hear in this text Is the brokenness of this family, and you and I resolve that will not be our story before we see that these interruptions of the kingdom of God are ultimately dependent on God's grace and not on human faithfulness. We're just gonna blame somebody who falls short. But if this will lead us to worship, I am convinced that the outcome will be for us relationally one of forgiveness. How's that the case? Sisters and brothers, we can't begin to hear a story like this and take it to heart and worship the God who works among broken, sinful human beings without a degree of humility. Shaping our lives and moving us toward one another. What a blessing that would be. I guess it also causes us to ask another question. And this is kind of in the language of of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians, if you will. When we think about our family, this family, how we relate. How have we, as Paul says to the Galatians, started by the Spirit, but where are we now turning to the efforts of the flesh to deal with the brokenness that we see, the sin. What does one look like turning to the flesh? I don't know everything that it looks like, but I know one sign of it for sure is a lack of prayer. There is nothing that models dependence more than prayer. I wonder if you've ever prayed, and as you pray, you're frustrated because you can't do something, but you're praying. Or have you ever prayed for somebody, and you've thought, man, I'm so frustrated. I really wish I could do something instead of just pray. (laughs) This idea... That we turn to the efforts of the flesh to deal with what's going on in our own hearts and lives. Is most seen in the absence of prayer. What do we do? This story is kind of easy in that regard. We stop and we repent. Jesus, we're just like these guys. I'm just like Isaac. I think another question that we have to ask ourselves is, what have we not told each other or the next generation about God? That, that seems pretty straightforward from this text, doesn't it? What have we not told each other about the truths of who God is or the next generation? And so when we hear this story, instead of shaking our head, can't believe this promised family this family of the promise is like this we go wait a minute how are we like this and the last thing that I think is interesting here is that it gives us an opportunity for this reassertion of the grace of God in all of Scripture For you to begin to play with the idea that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament is a dangerous idea. And a story like this would lead you to believe that that's not true in any way, shape, or form. In fact, some scholars will say that stories like this and stories like the apostles being knuckleheads that they were, these stories would lead you to the reality that these stories are true. Because who would ever encourage them to be put into the canon if they just have failure at the center? But what is at the story, the center of this story, is actually the grace of God. Because God's gracious purposes are not thwarted by human sin in his family tree. What becomes of this family of Jacob? You all know we're going to get there, but the little you know, prequel is that you can look ahead and there are 12 children, right? And these 12 children become the 12 tribes of, of Israel, and, and this tri- these tribes of Israel end up in Egypt, and, and they're sl- enslaved in Egypt, and then they're set free in Egypt to go and worship in the wilderness, and they're called to worship to do what? To be a what? blessing to the nations, right? We've gone over this and over this. And in the wilderness, they turn away from God and they worship idols there. And then they go into the promised land and they're given the land. And what happens to them there? They turn and they worship idols. And, and the kings, they, they pray for a king. We want a king to rule us. And God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, but I'm going to give them the king. And they get Saul, and then they get David, and they get Solomon, and then the kingdom explodes, right? You know this. Till at the very end, the kingdom is cut down, and there is a stump, and there is the shoot to God's family tree. And it's over, right? No. You know it's not. Because you know that that stump Of Jesse, that Isaiah references in chapter 11, that from that stump comes a shoot, that God intervenes into this promised family, that God becomes a man in Jesus Christ, and there is a new start, there is a new root. There is renewed hope. I want you to see that Jesus is the anti-Isaac. Jesus is not led by sensuality. Jesus said that his food was to do the will of the Father. Jesus prayed to God and he said, Everything you have told me, I have told them. Jesus is the anti-Isaac. If you struggle by being Isaac, if you raised your hand in your heart and you said, I am Isaac, then you need to know Jesus is the anti-Isaac and he is yours. He is yours. His righteousness is yours. His justice is yours. His record is yours. You are forgiven in Christ. But Jesus is the anti-Rebecca too. Jesus Always enters into conflict. Jesus enters into your conflict in mine. Jesus never manipulates, but Jesus always changes us. Did you raise your hand and say, I am like Rebecca? I use people as pawns and I manipulate and I avoid conflict and I am willing to lie. Then Jesus is yours. His righteousness, his actions, his faithfulness is yours. You see where I'm going. Jesus is the anti-Jacob. He trusts the father jesus doesn't lie he's not into it for himself and jesus is the anti esau jesus is not dismissive defensive angry or vindictive but jesus is the perfect big brother who lays down his life for us god's gracious purposes are not thwarted by human sin in his family tree either. Listen, we celebrate on the front of your order of worship the kingdom of God that is like a tree that grows large enough for the birds of the air in which to find its nests. We started with the adage, And I want you to know it's true in God's family as well that fruit don't fall far from the tree. If we will allow ourselves to look upon Christ as the auntie Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, the one who is faithful in every way, we will worship him. And we, family, will be transformed this story is our story these are our people but more than that this is our god and he leads us to worship him because he is faithful please pray with me as we turn to this table